I think where we get lost a little bit in, in strength and conditioning is we think we only have this small box that we look through of exercise, of weight room, of barbell, of, of ISO, mm-hmm. of whatever. If we take all of that away, we look at what is training. Training is taking the human, making them better. And to do that, we need to input a stimulus that challenges whatever is, is inhibiting them right now so that that inhibitor gets taken off and now they're at a high level. That was Brady Volmering, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Lost Empire Herbs. You can get 15% off my favorite herbs for well-being and athletic performance by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. About three years ago, I got into herbalism after having Logan Christopher on the podcast, starting with the Phoenix formula, which literally had my body buzzing after I took it. Not in a jittery way, like coffee, but in a way where I really felt the herbs working with my body. Within two weeks, I was already noticeably stronger in the weight room. And ever since, I've made herbalism a regular part of my training regimen. I've totally ditched any sort of caffeine-laden pre-workout, and I really enjoy using supplements that come directly from the earth. Lost Empire Herbs was started by Logan Christopher and his two brothers to help bring back the lost empire of nature in our connection to it, and to bring the power of herbs to the general public. Again, if you want to see my favorite herbs, such as Shilijit, which has been mentioned by other podcast guests on this show, Phoenix Formula, and more, as well as get 15% off your purchase alongside a 365-day money-back guarantee, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for being here. In the world of athletic performance training, we have two basic general directions that we can go. And of course, there are plenty of layers and waves in between these directions. But in general, on one end, we have the skill-specific direction. So if my skill is throwing a baseball as fast as possible, you could say that skill specific could be constraints added to the throw. It could be throwing with lighter, slightly lighter, slightly heavier baseballs, throwing like a one pound medicine ball against the wall in a very specific manner, at least with the lower body and so on and so forth. All the specific things I can do to coach a skill. We on the other end of the spectrum have the general direction. We have all the things that we do to train the body weight training we have push-ups and pull-ups and crawls and calisthenics and lunges and weights and kettlebells and the list goes on is there are so many things that we can do to generally train the human body and when it comes to that general training there are some important things to look at that go beyond just the sets and reps and the i think it's very easy to think of general training we think of weights and then we think of set and rep schemes that are often borrowed from the power lifts and so on and so forth. But when it comes to the general training, it's all just really training the human being. And when it comes to training the human being, there's some other important perspectives that we can take when we look at that ultimate outcome. And how can we use that human general training? How can we leverage it? How can we optimize it to make that training flow out into whatever else the athlete is doing, including being better at the specific skills of their sport? Joining us today to speak with us on human level training is coach Brady Volmering. Brady is the owner of DAC Performance and Health, and Brady started out in his coaching career in the world of baseball skill training, and he has since moved on into the general world, the human performance arena, and Brady now puts the focus on increasing the capacity of the human being. 
on the show today, Brady will share with us his experiences and ideas on training athletes from that human level emphasis. Brady will go into isometric training and isometric holds and some specific intentions that he provides athletes with to optimize those exercises. Brady will talk about ideas on learning the way that a child learns and how can we leverage training in general based off those principles. We'll be talking about menu systems today and giving athletes autonomy as well as talking about the general adaptive capacity of the human being and some mental, emotional, psychological constructs that can allow humans to adapt to much higher training loads than perhaps we would have originally thought that they were capable of. This is a great episode that covers a lot of important concepts in training the total human for sport and beyond. I'm excited to get this show to you. So let's get started. Episode 291 with coach Brady Volmering. Brady, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. So I know you've, uh, you have your hats in a couple different arenas, the specific sport training world in baseball, and then the more general human performance training world. Could you give me a little bit of a, maybe a little bit of a background with your experiences in specific sport training, and then how you got into more general human performance training? Yeah, for sure. So I first started in the specific skill arena, working with mostly baseball players. So after I had gotten out of college, I was training athletes at a facility and we were doing a lot of skill-based work. So me specifically, I was mostly doing the hitting side of things. So through that, I was kind of able to see just a different level of athlete that each individual was, then also how that pertained to the skill that they're able to display. So to now take that into what I'm doing now, it's led me to my goal of training athletes in the quote unquote physical preparation space isn't necessarily to train them specifically for that sport, but more so to train them to be a more efficient, better, like higher level human. Because what I saw in that skill development space earlier was that those were the the athletes that were able to actually take not only like for me it was the the skill of hitting, not only take that skill and apply it much more quickly in a higher level, but take any skill that we gave them and apply it. So it's like the, the, the more efficient, the better the actual human, they can take what they have as a human and apply that to anything that they want much more efficiently than someone who isn't working at quite as high of a level. So that's kind of how I've connected those two together. Sure. So when you were doing the specific, like the skill specific stuff, the hitting type work, now were you, maybe you said it, but were you doing like the, the weight training, the human level, the GPP type work for those individuals? Or was it just them coming in for hitting mechanics? No. So it was, we had a staff. So it was myself, uh, Jared Burton, training officially on Instagram. Uh, Brett Adams was there for a little bit of transcending performance. So we were all like, I was doing hitting and then they were doing stuff in the weight room, preparing athletes in that way. So we had, we actually had a really good system set up. There are other things kind of got in the way to where we couldn't continue that. But yeah, we were taking into account everything. So I knew that when I was getting athletes for skill development, that they were getting prepared or I knew how they were getting prepared in the weight room. And I could also speak with Jared and speak with Brett about what they were doing so that I knew, take what they're doing into consideration when I'm training them for their skill. Sure. So when we talk about training transfer, and this is where, as you're talking, I think to myself, the human being is such a complex organism. And I think it's very, we we can definitely list out training transfer, especially for any skill like, like hitting we can look at Bondarchuk's pyramid, like on the top is obviously just hitting. And then there's 
at the very bottom of the pyramid, it's just very general, pure human level stuff. And then in the middle of two slices, you have, I don't know what the specific thing would be like for hitting, like it would be like in shot put, it would be throwing like a heavy medicine ball in a similar way to the shot put stuff like that. I don't know if that exists in hitting. I, I guess what I'm trying to say or ask maybe is I think a lot of people listening to this might be familiar with the general uh, categories of training transfer. I, I know Cure When I'm Flat has mentioned the weight room being um, uh, SDE or SPE, sorry, SDE is the second to tough, SPE at best. How much transfer can we get out of this? When you say general, like training to be a better human though, I think it, it almost can give that GPP, that bottom part of the pyramid, that just general slice, more layers. Like it gives it more, it gives it more, if that makes sense. I hope you know where I'm trying to go with this. I guess what I'm trying to ask is how do you view the transfer training type ideology in light of yeah. how do you, com- you, you communicate it to the players? Are you noticing trend lines? Like, okay, we're getting stronger or better at this. This is yielding a better transfer to this element of hitting. How do you see training transfer? Right. So what I'm doing now, when I'm, when I'm preparing a human, I'm not, this might be kind of controversial, but I'm not at all thinking about transfer to their sport. So I'm thinking about, because if we think about what, what makes up a human, we have to take everything into account. So we have normally in, in weight training, all we think of is like their physical output, maybe a little bit like their level of consistency, their level, level of quote unquote mental toughness, if we want to go there, but just like I'm trying to take more of that, more than that into account. So I'm going to take the story of the athlete into account because that story of the athlete is their experience leading up to that point. And that's going to, the perception that they see things out of is going to be affected by that. So each athlete is going to see what we give them through a different lens. If we talk about training transfer and we have, let's say we have two athletes, we give one or we give them both the deep push-up and both end up getting five minutes on deep push-up. Great. One athlete says, okay, I got a five minute deep push-up. That's it. Like five minute deep push-up. Awesome. What's next? Other athlete understands that the goal of this deep push-up is for them to be able to direct their intent into whatever it is that they're doing. The deep push-up is just one way to practice that because they understand that like cognitively, they're going to be able to to take that in mentally, emotionally, cognitively, and apply that to anything that they're doing. And that's going to actually change their physiology. If, if we think about, let's say you ask someone to, or they're going to meet up with two friends, one friend they liked, one friend they didn't like. And they knew that three days from now, they were going to meet that friend, like whichever one it was. That's going to change their physiology, where if they're meeting with a friend that they do like, they might be in a better mood, they're going to be happier. It's going to change the way that they actually interact with the world over the course of those three days. They're literally going to be a different person versus if they were meeting with this friend that they just didn't want to see. That's going to change in a different direction. So if we go back to the deep push-up, the two athletes, one athlete understands that we're using this deep push-up to practice directing their intention into anything that we're having them do. So they're acutely aware of everything that's going on during that deep push-up. Their physiology, when they get out of that deep push-up and when they go to apply it to, let's say, their skill or their sport work, is going to be completely different than the one who just does the five-minute deep push-up, and then they're done with it. And then they're like, well, this is completely different than, than me running faster. This is completely different than me being able to relax and flip my arm up in a throw. Like These two things are completely different. That's where 
my goal with training an athlete is to get them to understand that I'm not training you for your sport. I'm training you to be able to essentially take things out of the way so that you can apply yourself to anything more directly. So if you can apply yourself to the point where we get this five minute deep push up and you understand why we're doing that, now you can take and you can say, okay, I'm doing a sprint right now. There's nothing else on my mind. Or if I know that I work better, like not specifically focused on this, that I'm aware of that. And, I'm, and I can be like, okay, I'm going to be talking with friends. I'm going to be loose and relaxed and not really thinking about the sprint. Whatever their story is for how they work best, by them learning how to direct their intention, they're going to be able to be more aware of that and then do that at a higher level. So it's like, that's where the human aspect of things is, how can we go into the human and how can we take off inhibitors so that they can direct themselves towards anything in the best possible way? Yeah, I think it's easy to look at that like transfer training pyramid and just look at the bottom and it's general, it's human and not and just to think of it as maybe the thing that transfers the least, but we do still need to do this to have a diversity of movement and whatnot. But when you describe describe it that way, again, I, I definitely think that it's true for us to think a lot more of things, just the industry in general, to think of things just from more of a numbers perspective, a quantitative perspective, uh, uh, how much but and what. If I, could, if I could interrupt. Sure. That it doesn't mean, so when we go through this human approach, it doesn't mean that the numbers don't get better. Because I think that's also a way that we kind of get sidetracked is like, well, basically what you're saying, like if someone, if I was talking to someone, they'd be like, basically what you're saying is that numbers don't matter. None of this matters. I'm not saying that that doesn't matter. I'm saying that if we can go the human route, we're going that route because that's going to produce better numbers than just focusing on the numbers would. Like if we look long, long term. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And they're, they're both important for sure. I just think we're, yeah. we're overly focused on one with the general absence of considering the other. And Yes, if you if you work the qualitative, <laughs> I always mix those two words up in my head. I don't know why, but if you work the quality of what you're doing, you get better numbers, and that's been something that I think I has been more and more true to me every year that I've I've worked as a coach, and also as I still continue to train. I I always tend to think back of when have been the best training times in my life, and invariably it's been it's been there's a quality. Maybe it's a, a training partner or a group of training individuals. It's maybe it was a time where there wasn't necessarily a lot of stress or there was just a certain environment. That is a lot more important than people think it is. And even to the point of watching athletes, how do you even walk around between your sets? What's your mannerism? What can you tell of a person's intention by the way they're just carrying themselves in the training setting? And just seeing how looking having the opportunity to look at how different athletes will adapt throughout the year to they're all getting the same training <laughs> but then you read you read body language you read how are you actually navigating this training mentally and emotionally and from an intentional perspective and you will get a better outcome your numbers will get better and so i'm i'm excited to dig more into that and the the specific intentional pieces too because some of what i've read from you there's so much more that exists in some of these movements that i think we would just look on the the outset just of them. Yeah. So is there any specific ones that you want that you want me to kind of dive into? Sure. Yeah. So you had mentioned it actually it was something I was going to follow up with you yeah. somewhat quickly here. Is you say, okay, two athletes are doing the same five minute isometric push up hold or or whatever. Or how, whatever exercise, I guess an isometric is an easy one to direct intentions. You're not going anywhere. And sometimes I feel like that is probably the point of 
are a big point of why do you select those things. If you look at like the constraints-based approach, right? Like you're you're really constraining things to what's going on between your ears. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit about intentions. Like you're giving this exercise to this individual. Um, yeah. How do you navigate that from an intention space? So even if we look within an ISO, we can have an infinite number of intentions within that ISO. A lot of times how we'll use them, or at least when we talk about them publicly, put it up on social media, a lot of times how we use them is like, okay, we have this position, you're going to go for as long as you can in this position. And that's your intention. So that's one way that we can direct it. And that's where I think they can get into a little bit of the only used as like this quote unquote mental toughness tool, which is for me, not even close to like the full potential that they have and not even with ISOs, but just with intention in general. But I'm just talking about ISOs because it's, it's easy to kind of narrow down because like you said, you're not moving. So that's one intention that we can have is you're going to hold it for as long as, as you can, but we can use intention to direct the training focus of the athlete towards whatever their weakest link is. So for me, if I'm training an athlete, my goal is to figure out what's inhibiting to to release that inhibitor. So let's say I found someone that, or I have an athlete that when I watch them do a deep pushup, their breathing is extremely rapid right off the bat, but it doesn't seem to be because of lack of strength because it can be from a lack of strength, right? If you just if you just struggle to hold yourself up in a deep pushup, your breath is going to go pretty quick. So then in that case, we can figure out, okay, your weakest link is literally your ability to hold your body in that position because you don't have the strength to do so. Some athletes who may be strong enough still have that breath go fast earlier than it should. So if that's the case, instead of just doing an ISO and saying like, okay, control your breath. Now what I might do is say, you're going to hold this deep pushup ISO or any ISO for as long as you can, while still being able to maintain an exhale that's twice as long as an inhale. And we can set numbers for that. So we can say you inhale for one, you exhale for two, or you inhale for four, you exhale for, for eight. Whatever the numbers that we want to set is going to be individual to the athlete based on like how well they can actually breathe. But then what we're doing is we're taking, and we're not necessarily challenging the muscular strength of the athlete in that case, but we're challenging their ability to hold position while they, while they're also controlling their breath. So if they get to the point where their breath changes, then we can be like, you're done. Or it's like you have 20 seconds to now return that breath back to normal. So that's like one way that we can direct intent specifically during an ISO. Another thing that we could do is like an exhale breath hold during an ISO, or we could say like, okay, you have an injury or you're feeling pain in your shoulder. We see them during a deep pushup. They have trouble keeping their shoulders actually like locked into what we would call quote unquote good position and good position is a whole nother rabbit hole. But basically the way that I look at position is, can you get into every single position that your body has the ability to get into and can you control that position? So that kind of takes away the, like it takes away the thought process of good versus bad position. And it's just, if you can get there, we need to be able to get there. So, okay, we're in this deep pushup. You can't get to this position, or maybe you can for a little bit, but then you lose it. We're going to have you accumulate three to five minutes in a deep pushup, but you have to be able to do it while your shoulder is in this position. Make sure that they can feel that. And now we go. So then it's not just about like going as long as you can, because if we only use ISOs to go as long as, as you can, then it can also turn into a back squat where like, okay, we're doing 
we're just trying to raise your back sweat to go from 400 to 500. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but if we only use an ISO to say, we're trying to get you to go from two minutes to five minutes and be able to hold, they're essentially the same thing, just different exercises. So we scale that back and we say, what does the athlete actually need? Like, what do they need? What is going to improve them the most? That is what we're going to train. We're not just going to do an ISO for max time because that's how we do ISOs. That's, that's not the point. We need to understand how the input that we're, that we're giving the athlete affects the output and then direct the input to get the output that we want, which might mean using a different intention with an ISO or with any exercise that we do. Yeah, one thing that I found interesting, and I was doing this for a little bit with myself and then a few athletes, was I had a heart math monitor, which is like it detects something it calls a heart coherence. And yep. in reality, the, the biggest, the easiest way to explain it is if your breathing is off, that your heart coherence will be bad. So if you're breathing like four seconds in, eight seconds out, very consistently on that rhythm, you will have a high heart coherence. If I'm breathing like three, seven, three, eight, two, you know, like, and it's, and it's off, then that heart coherence will crash. So I found for myself, I could actually get, I got to the point where I could go further into like an ISO, like an ISO lunge and actually get better as I went along. And then, but I found the athletes that I was using it on actually got worse. Like they crashed and burned pretty quickly. And, and it was a situation though, where all I was seeing of them was in the gym. So I wasn't actually able to watch them in their sport. And I really wonder to myself, if, if you, if I watched their sport, if I would have saw like maybe some erratic play, some erratic decision-making, like maybe poor reaction time. I know from my discussion with, uh, or reading some of the heart math literature that higher coherence scores have been associated with better reaction times. And I've, I've noticed that actually like the day after doing an ISO session where I was very mindful of the breathing, that it, it just playing games to warm up the next day, just whatever, like soccer or whatever, like everything was so on point. Like it's just like when you're in the zone, everything just comes to you like and you don't have to work as hard. It was like that. And so that's been something that I've been wanting to do more of because I feel like sometimes I think in the weight room, there's almost a feeling of helplessness in the sense of, well, this athlete could get their squat up or their vertical up and then they're going to go make some, you know, then the tactics or the technical could just make that not matter, you know? And it's like, we're always trying to find things that yes, this human quality can transfer over. Anyways, I was, that's been long-winded, but I wanted to ask you what you thought about like that in terms of like, yeah, watching hit, watching hitting practice and breathing patterns. And is there anything that you've noticed that, uh, and this is where it's great to have that sports skill specific experience as well, but Anything you notice with athletes who like do poorly at some of these human elements and, and linking it to specific skill outcomes? I mean, again, I guess I, I'm not trying to make things too simplistic, but I'm curious on your, your thoughts for that because I had an unfinished experiment <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah. So actually it was just, uh, I think it was Saturday, this past Saturday where I was having a conversation with an athlete. So he he tore his UCL. So we were rehabbing from or we were having from rehabbing from that surgery and he's now back on the mound throwing full intent. And he's like, it's crazy. <laughs> like what he said, was like, I'm starting to understand, like, you're not just this crazy dude that trains guys out of his garage, but he's like, I literally, I won't do what I used to do. Like, he's like, if I get in a tough situation, I used to spike a ball. Like if I'm trying to go two Oh fastball inside on a hitter, I used to spike it and I wouldn't be able to do it. He's like, now, it's just like, I get it and I go, or he's like, like, he just feels like he has that control of his body that he's never had before. 
And what we did throughout that whole process was a lot of ISOs, yes, but then also like a lot of single joint moves and just a lot of this basic, basic human element training stuff. Like there's one day where we found, I don't remember what we were doing, but like his breath, we're like, okay, this is a weak spot. So like we need to start attacking your breath. So then we start doing XL breath holds or we start doing like whatever it is. We just continually find whatever that lowest factor is. And then what you'll find is on the other end, like you said, they're just, they're able to function at a higher level. Like the, the best athletes in the world don't, aren't necessarily there because they, because they did the right superset or they did the right, whatever it's because their, their actual, the actual level of their system is leveled up. So yeah, it just, there's so much more that we, that we can dive into than, than just like looking at training as the weight room. That's kind of another thing that has been on my mind is like training doesn't equal weight room. It equals changing the human. And when we change the human, that's going to transfer over to that skill. But to, yeah, to get back to your point that that's kind of, that's the extent he, he literally just felt like that was the case where we'd gone through all these human elements of training and he got into his, after not having thrown for however long he hadn't thrown, he's like, my body literally feels like it's like it's a different body because we went through all that human athlete work. Blood work is a common analysis in the regime of elite athletes. It quantifies many dimensions and metrics of an athlete's physiology and helps one to see windows of potential performance improvement. Today's episode is also sponsored by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. The company uses a blood test and patented algorithm to analyze your body's physiological markers, providing you with a clear picture of what's going on inside of you. Inside Tracker then offers science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. In using Inside Tracker myself, it was truly fascinating to see the many metrics of my own physiology, looking at things like hormone levels, inflammation, blood oxygen-related metrics, and much more. If you are interested in an Inside Tracker analysis, for a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. And to get that discount, head to insidetracker.com/justflysports. Yeah, I, I like that, Brady, and I like you know what you're saying. Like training the human is not the weight room. That's been so uh, meaningful for me. I think um, it was meeting. Uh, I, I met Alex Lee, who had trained under Tommy John for a long time, and he would take occasionally come to Cal and take me through workouts, just bodyweight workouts. This was like maybe six years ago um, and five, six years ago. And it was just a bunch of isometrics and it was, you know, he had, and he's been on this podcast and talked about how he had gone through all the, the typical uh, weight room training and then had injuries and then worked with Tommy and did almost all just bodyweight extensive work, human level work. And then came back when he did lift again, he was really strong. I think he said he was actually stronger or had gotten stronger in a short period of time than uh, what he had managed before. And one of the things Alex had said was just like doing the simplest things with the maximal intention and like presence. And I think that's why I, I know in Jay Strader's programs to my awareness, like the the base package is always just body weight work. <laughs> and it's like, because you can't get away from yourself. You know, I think it's easy to you know, you, you switch barbell exercises, you kind of, it's almost like, and I mean, I think variety and novelty is good, but sometimes I think that variety and novelty, you can just be switching through, through exercises and going through the motions without ever having to get into, like you said, 
that human level based package where you're looking at their positional ability or their breathing or their focus ability. Um, you had said something too, uh, I think it was in one of your posts, and I was actually doing this in my workout last night, I was actually doing this, but I think you had said something along the lines of they have to keep their eyes focused on something too. For me, I struggle with that type of idea. So I was doing like three-way hip circles and I was like, all right, I have to get through this set without one, touching my foot down to the ground that's spinning in the air. And two, I have to look directly at this point and I can't drop my focus because I will move my focus rapidly. <laughs> and then I think three was actually, I put, I made up the constraint for myself. Like I had to say something like positive about like the outcome of like my hips, my foot and hip is getting rad with this exercise or something like that. I was like, I don't, something to that tune, but, and you could make up pretty much anything, I guess, if you wanted to, you know, speak positively to the exercise outcome. But I was, that was, it kind of created this creative spark in me where I'm like, I'm thinking of if it's a really simple thing that you're doing, well, there's a lot of things that, that do take some nuance. Like you have to be able to observe athletes, um, not just on like, you know, the broad strokes, are you doing this in your barbell squat, but you have to really be mindful and you have to really notice what's going on on a, more of a minute level. But yeah, as you said, I think there's a lot of those things from an intention perspective that can really be meaningful. And it's almost like the first layer. It's, a, it's almost like the first level. Like it really brings out that base layer of that, that pyramid of performance. Yeah. And so you brought up Tommy John. So I, I have to bring this up because I think he's been, he said this a little bit, I mean, pretty recently. So I got to give, you know, full credit to him. So he brought up the idea of the best athletic progress or just like human progress that we ever made was from the time that we were born to the time that we started walking, which I don't know, it happened somewhere within, I think, nine, nine to 18 months, depending on, right? So it's this insane level of athletic progress that we have during that time. For me, like, I, I don't think enough people understand or appreciate that level of progress, but then also how we got there. Like that level of progress might be you going from like a, like a five, eight, 40 to like a four, four in like in six months. I mean, I don't know the exact equivalent of that, but just like that level of progress is pretty insane. And most people never actually have that same level of progress again throughout the rest of their life. So if we look at that, and this is kind of a, a switch that I've had recently as well, but it's just like, if we look at that, what what was the training of that child actually like? And I, I think you want to talk about this a little bit. Like I have the sign train like a child uh, in the garage gym here. So, and that's taken on like new meaning for me. So if we, if we look at that scenario where the child essentially trained himself to be able to walk within that time span, and we never, for the most part, we never matched that level of athletic progress before, why wouldn't we go back to that? So I started thinking about that and I was trying to think of ways that I could literally train this newly born baby <laughs> to be able to walk in that amount of time. Like, what would I give him? I would essentially give him like the joint moves that I have. I would give him all these, maybe some ISOs, whatever. Like I would, I would really have no idea what to give him. So I was like, the way that he taught himself or the baby teaches himself how to do that is through his own intention is through his own feel. And what his body is telling him that he needs to do to get to this point that, of where he wants to go. So that's where uh, there's been a little flip in the way that I look at things where I'm not necessarily, I'm not trying to build anything for an athlete. Like I'm not trying to give them a program that's going to help them build anything. 
I'm trying to take away stories or perceptions or quote unquote programs that have gotten in the way that get them away from that innate level feel that they have. So if I give an athlete and I'm very clear, or I try to be very clear about this on, on like initial calls with athletes that I work with. If I give you something that you're like, you know, man, we've been doing this for a while and it's just not working. I don't like doing this. My body doesn't feel good after doing this. I'll say to them, don't do that. Be like, Brady, I don't understand why we're doing this. Can we stop? Or can you at least explain to me why we're doing it? Because I need to know what the athlete is feeling because their body is always right. Like their body knows exactly what they need. If they can take, if they can take their intention that they have, let's just, for example, let's say that we're working with a, with a football athlete they want to improve the 40, just to make it very simple. They have this intention of right now they run a four, seven, and they want to run a four, four. They have this very clear and specific intention. The question then becomes, or the one that I've started asking myself is how do they get to that point without me doing anything as in without me giving them anything to do? Like how can they take themselves to that point? Because that's essentially the equivalent of, again, that baby teaching themselves how to walk without anyone telling them what to do. What gets in the way of us being able to tap into that same innate level sense that that baby has is us are those stories that have gotten in the way. So it's people saying that you need to like, whatever it is that you shouldn't train too much. You shouldn't train too little. There's, there's literally an infinite amount of like stories that we're given as to how we're supposed to train. If we can take away all those stories and actually get down to the athlete, being able to go inside themselves and feel exactly what they need as they're connected to that intention of the goal that they have, of the outcome that they want, their body is going to tell them what they need. So practically what that looks like for me is I'll have, if I'm working with an athlete, I'll be like, basically what I'm giving you is an outline or a guideline of what it's like my best guess, or it's what I think you need for this day. But if they've been working for me for with me for a while, they'll be I'll be like, you know, everything that we kind of have that that you could do. So if what I give you doesn't feel like it's what you want or need to do that day, then like switch it and do something completely different and just let me know, because that is information for me. I need to follow what your body is saying, not necessarily what I'm just giving you to do. But again, that's. That's what that that's what the caveat of of the athlete being able to actually kind of pull away those programs and pull away those stories so that they can actually feel themselves. Because if you if we try to go down that route, what we'll also find is like some athletes don't actually know they don't know how to how to feel what their body is telling them. They're not in touch with that innate like capability that we all had and that we all have because there's so much junk that has gotten in the way. So that's where for, for that athlete, the process would be to start pulling all that out so that they can get back in touch with themselves so that we can start helping them learn to follow themselves again. Cool. Yeah, it's definitely, it, it's interesting to think about, yeah, the way a, a child thinks and processes versus um, one who, as you grow up and you start hearing things about training. And I think part of it is whether, like how much you believe them and how it impacts your response. I feel like I see that the most actually with Sometimes I've seen athletes who, or there's certain groups of um, like coaching programs that um, the athletes who do those 
go through that coaching program, um, it, they have a hard time do it, getting better after they leave it because they were so it's, it's usually a program where it's like, it's, there's not like the menu systems. It's like this is the specific way to train. There's usually a lot of high intensity training. It's a very competitive and charged up environment. So these athletes get better. But then when they leave that, they have a hard time to continue to improve because there's, it's like you're starting all over again. And I, so anyways, I, I, I find it interesting with that. I, I think a little bit about, I've had a unique training situation in the sense of I have been obsessed with training since I was probably like eight. And it's, I actually had a really interesting situation in, well, both high school and college. I had an immense amount of control over my own training, but I found when I had too much, um, I was a sports medicine major, my uh, or athletic training, my first few years of college. And so because of those requirements, I actually couldn't work out with the team that much. I did a lot of training on my own, did a lot of stupid stuff that didn't help me get better. <laughs> um, and then my junior year, I switched to exercise science, trained almost entirely with the team, but I talked with the coach and, and basically he let me do like one workout a week kind of on my own. And then when the um, when it was like, I did, this was for jumps and track and field, but I would also for the jumps practice component, I would just kind of go and do my own thing. And for me, that was the the perfect balance. Like, I don't think it's egotistical to say, like, I don't think if I would have had somebody, this nothing to do with the quality of the exercises, but just for me personally, I needed to have enough say and, and intuitive input into that small part of the program to do my best. But I also needed the overarching rest of the structure in the program and working with teammates and things like that and to to also be my best. If it wasn't for the structured program of the coach, I would not have done nearly as well as I did. But it was really important that I did have that opportunity for a few core key things that I could like kind of like a child, like just go through it myself and learn it myself. And I think it's a little bit different for everybody, but I, I really love what James um, or Jamie Smith said when he was on this podcast a while ago. And basically like the older the athletes get and the more mature the athletes get in his program, the more options they have on their menu. Like it's that's, he considers that a fundamental part of the programming is menu systems. And I look back to, uh, especially like when I was working with swimmers um, back at Cal towards the taper part of the year, the competitive season, that's when like I would put more choices into their program. You could pick this or this. And, but part of me thinks, I mean, that those choices for, for advanced athletes for, and for some should be even more, that it should be even more substantial. So um, I've also known coaches, actually swim coaches who in the off season, like the fall or kind of like the less important part of the season, the athletes get to, um, they get to choose their own stroke, the strokes they want to do. Uh, so they get ownership over that. And then the more, uh, the more the championship portion of the year, they don't get to pick the strokes anymore, but now they get to choose um, the, the, like the yardage, like some different, here's three different workouts with different intensities and yardage, and then they get to choose those. And I just think that's so cool. Like always having that layer of autonomy in the program to keep, yeah, like what you said. Um, I just think there's a lot of different ways to do it. And it's, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting long-winded with this, but just I, I like talking about this stuff. But I'm curious, so how do you, uh, like how do you go about menu systems and, and, and giving that option to the athlete? I know you've talked about like 10 minutes, you have 10 minutes to do X or uh, what are some different ways you deliver that autonomy to an athlete? Yeah, and so just to build off what you said a little bit there, first, eight, if we... So if we were to take the reins completely off and be like, okay, you just go and do whatever like you feel or, or that you want to do, 
it's not to say that that's going to be the most like the fastest level of progress that that they'll ever make like we need because they have all these things that are that are getting in the way so like i don't know i'm just like for you when you did stuff on your own i think you said your first two years of college maybe yeah and you didn't have quite as good of progress where were you getting the stuff that you're doing on your own from like where was that was that stuff that you had just kind of like seen and wanted to, to test out or what was your process for, for choosing those? Yeah. So that's a good question. Uh, yeah. So where, where did I go wrong? Well, so a lot of it was stuff I had done. It was the stuff that was um, the, like the cherry on top type stuff. And so I played basketball, for example, in high school. And honestly, basketball was a base in many ways. Uh, and I also did when we did in track season there was also a lot like running and tempo running and those types of things which has some suboptimal elements to it but from an elastic element it was it was good for me so but i just took the things that i had done that i felt like gave you those instant results so like the depth jumps the even doing like olympic lifts i felt like had a lot of positive kind of short-term um effects for me so i always i took the things that had the immediate emotional hit so a lot of my training was just plyometrics heavy weightlifting which you know is great but the problem is i wasn't doing just the core basic human work like i wasn't playing sports i wasn't sprinting really i wasn't doing any longer sprints i wasn't doing any just like elastic maintenance type stuff i wasn't doing any stuff to help me recover off the high intensity stuff <laughs> um so it was yeah and i was slow my sophomore year of college i was slow like i'm taught, like painfully slow i mean i probably ran a half second faster in the 100 the the next year like that's how much better it was um but i also was uh, a lot of it was all by myself too like my those first two years it was just me and not for me if i'm um not sprinting with other people like not racing <laughs> is one of the worst things i can do for myself as an athlete failing to race somebody or even you know a timing gate for that matter so yeah those were that's the long and the short of it okay yeah because i was just curious because that's where like uh if we can like if we can help to educate the athletes on, and obviously it's going to be a process, right? It's not like that. This is, it's not like this is going to happen over, you know, two weeks or one conversation, but it's like, if we can educate the athletes on how to listen to their body, how to understand if there are stories getting in the way, but then also how to understand like the process of, adaptation like how the body adapts where it's essentially like it's going to adapt specifically to the stress that we give it then they're going to have a little bit more solidified framework to then go and actually like quote unquote train themselves so because like I, i'm just going back to what i talked about in terms of like training like a child or training like the baby does like they don't have any of those stories getting in the way so it's like, what, what can we provide that same framework? And I think if we can get to that point, um, then we're going to be able to see that same level of progress. So like, I look at, I look at your story that you went through and it's basically like you were going off of things that had worked best for you in the past. Um, so it's like part of, part of unraveling that story would be, okay, for, for whatever reason, like the story that you have is like, you're only going to do what feels best whereas if we look at again if, if we go back to the baby if they try to stand up the first time they fall down and they hit their head that doesn't feel best 
but they don't have the story that says, Hey, that didn't feel good. Don't do that again. So it's like, if, if we can, again, get back to that, just that innate level of knowing. Um, yeah, I, I just, I think there's massive room for progress there. I'm, I'm definitely not saying that I have, that I have it figured out on how to get there, but that's, that's something that's really grabbed my attention and grabbed my, or just sparked my curiosity as of late. And your story is interesting because just to think about, you know, what stories might've been there that we could have, have pulled away to actually make that process more, more uh, efficient for you. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. Simplyfaster.com is a fantastic coaching resource, not only on the level of their blog and all the information they put out, but also on the level of their online store. With the click of a button, you can see and purchase the technology that is utilized by so many of the world's great coaches. In simplyfaster.com's online store, you can have access to training technology such as blood flow restriction training, timing systems, including the free lap timing system, bar speed tracking devices, a variety of resistance training machines, such as the K-Box, and also Kaiser training units, which Kaiser training units being strongly recommended by sprint coach Randy Huntington, for example. You'll also get access to motorized sprint training units, such as the 1080 sprint, force plates, and much more. You can check that all out by heading to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, I, I will say too, one of the interesting things that I've learned in the world of swimming is swimming is really notorious for being like this high volume grinder where <laughs> if um like you you talk to like the omega wave people or you put omega waves on swimmers like they're always in the gutter they're always in the red it's just this sport where that's kind of the territory um even for programs that are i guess you could say more progressive and lower volume um it's still it's still going to be this thing where athletes i guess are as per what people would say overtrained. And I think that caused a rift. I, I know there was like some coaches who'd like, I don't want to use this. It says my athletes always in the red. So forget it. Like, but uh, I, it was interesting to me, I guess, in the sense of, you know, you, you look at like track and field training setups that are very, you know, quality is, you know, being the first and foremost thing. And then you see and hear these, some of these stories about these swimmers who would just do insanity yardage. I mean, not, just like, like almost double what a high volume program was doing already or just gnarly workouts because they wanted to or mm -hmm. stuff like that. And again, I don't, I'm not like, I'm definitely not one for junk, junk um, volume, but to see or hear stories of people who were still super successful, um, who are still doing just crazy stuff. Or uh, I think even um, the, the coach who trains uh, people who know track, maybe they're familiar with that Karsten Warholm, who is the who blew away the 400 hurdle world record i mean i think two or three guys went under the old record i mean and that track this summer was bouncy like randy huntington said it was like in, an insanely bouncy track so that i'm sure that probably helped a little bit but regardless like it was an unbelievable performance and i guess from my understanding the coach that trains warholm and i could be wrong but i, I think this is the case is it is a pretty high volume high like it's a lot of sprinting it's a lot of volume but a lot of athletes don't make it like they don't they can't yeah. handle it. And the last athlete before Warholm that that coach trained who could handle it was also like a total beast. <laughs> so it's like one. So you got two like really elite performers out of that group in, I don't know, 15 years or something. But yeah. then you would ask the question, well, what what's different about like Warholm that he could handle it? <laughs> right. Like based off what you're saying and like that process that that's what I would want to know, like, because I don't think it's just 
like physiological, like, oh, he has this, like, I don't know, some sort of muscle metabolic or structural gene that he could somehow handle it. I, I think that as long as I've been in this, I do think there's athletes who just process training differently. They have a different, like, top-down, mind-down perspective that somehow lets their body handle that. So, I'm, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that with, like, volumes. I, I know that, I mean, you've done, like, hundreds of depth drops type, type training before. I've heard uh, like the legend of uh, like Adam Archuleta's training with Jay Schrader was involved like a ridiculous amount of depth drops, uh, like way beyond what we typically would do. And so uh, I'm just curious what you've learned, if you have any interesting, I mean, and I know the easiest way is probably like the single joint stuff. Like that's an easy, like a first like way to go into it without probably like overtraining, right? But like, um, do you have any anecdotes or thoughts on some of those higher volume experiences with things that typically you know, have been said like we shouldn't do this. Yeah. So I'll, I'll go through my experience that I had with the depth drops. Um, so I put it up on the, on my Instagram that I have, it was like, uh, so I'll just kind of walk you through the process and then, and then relate it all at the end. So, uh, I think it was the day before I decided to do this or, or it was that morning I had saw something where it talked about, it talked about rats being able to, like they did, they did an experiment where they put rats in water and to see how long they would tread water before they, before they kind of gave up. So one set of rats, they just left them in to see how long they could tread. And they found it was about 15 minutes. The other set of rats, they put them in. Like once they found out it was 15 minutes, they put them in right before 15 minutes hit, before they were going to drown, they would take them out. Like they would essentially save them. They would give them a little bit of time to rest. So it wasn't like they had a whole lot of recovery time. And then they would put them back in the water. And what they found is that when they knew that they were going to be saved, like that second set of rats, they would go for 60 hours. So like, instead of going for 15 minutes, they would go for 60 hours simply because their perception changed around, like they thought that they were going to be saved. So it's like, why wouldn't I keep going? Hmm. If I just keep going, then I'm going to be fine. Anyways, so I, I had read that or seen that on the day before I tried that. So then the next day, I basically said, okay, I'm going to test this out with depth drops. So I was doing depth drops off a 36-inch uh, height, and I got to, I don't even remember what my intention was when I first started. It's basically just going until I don't want to anymore. Um, so I was going, and I was keeping track on, a, on like a clicker, and I got to 105, and I said, okay, I'm, I'm not going to look at the, I'm not going to look at the clicker anymore. Like I'm still going to keep track, but I'm not, I'm not going to count. I'm not going to look at the clicker anymore. And I had other athletes in at the time. So it's not like I could, you know, keep track of it. So I ended up going for about two and a half hours, but during that time, different things came up. So when I got somewhere past that 105, but probably before 200, like my left knee started to hurt pretty bad. So when you hit that scenario, like there, there's an infinite number of possibilities of directions that you could go in terms of, of how you, how you navigate that problem. Like if one athlete that hasn't, that doesn't understand how to, how to utilize their own physiology, utilize their own like mental space to, to kind of affect their physiology you might say, okay, there's pain there. I'm done. I'm going to stop for me because at some point earlier in my experience, I had saw something or read something where it was like, okay, your mental state or your emotional state has a direct impact on your physiology. When that knee pain hit, I was literally like, 
that's fine. I'm just going to like in my mind, I literally pictured what would a child do. And like the day before I had seen like kids running down a hill and just like yelling and bouncing like rhythmically, whatever. So I was like, I'm, I'm just going to start doing that. So I started just like literally making noise. Like I'd go like, Oh, and then when I land, I would like make a loud kind of output, whatever through my mouth. And I didn't feel the pain anymore. Um, there's another point in time where it's like, I think my foot started to hurt. So I just like put on shoes and then started landing deeper. Um, but I guess the point is, cause you asked how do some athletes handle more volume? So I ended up getting to not that the number really even matters, but it was like 661 death drops went into a wall sit after that. Um, and accumulated five minutes. And the interesting thing during that five minute wall sit is that it felt like all inhibitors that are normally on were just taken off. So it's like, I didn't even have to think about like, do I want to do this? <laughs> it was literally just like, I like the, the thought of, Hey, let's do a wall sit came up. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go do that. And it's like, while I was in there, I mean, I think a lot of us have gotten to the point where we're, we're in ISOs and you start shaking. Like it's kind of that like reflexive, um, kind of bouncing. So like that was happening, but it's not like, it's not like I wanted to stop. I just kind of stayed there. Um, but if we kind of go back through that, I think what allowed me to handle that experience of higher volume was everything that I I'd experienced, like literally in my life up until that point, because that provide that gives me the perception of how to navigate what I'm doing. So this is, I mean, it's one of the hardest things to communicate. But it's when I'm working with an athlete, I want them to go in and feel what they're doing during each exercise to ask me questions so that they know why they're doing what they're doing so that they can be more aware of what they're doing. Because what comes out on the back end of that is that you can navigate these scenarios like that death drop experience. Like that's just, that was, again, that was just my personal experience, but you can, whatever your experience is going to be, you're going to be able to understand how to manipulate your own physiology manipulate your own psychology, whatever we want to call it, manipulate your own system to be able to get through whatever you want to get through to get where you're trying to go. So for me, the athletes that can handle these higher levels of volume are those that have learned whether they understand, whether they know it or not. Cause I think some athletes are just quote unquote born with more efficient systems. So they, they innately understand how to do that. Other people have more inhibitors on where they don't understand how to, how to do that. But it's those athletes that we can take and we can train. And ideally, we can help them understand how to navigate their own system to get to that point. Um, and it's pro- like an important piece to say with that is it's not like I'm going to take an athlete and say, hey, go do, go do depth drops until you can't anymore. <laughs> like, you know, the first the first time I see them or even for the first like six months or for the first year. It's just, it's that principle of you take the athlete where they're at, you find out where their lowest functioning system is and you level that up and you continually do that over and over and over again. And you do that for like, you do that forever. And and what happens when you do training in that way is that there's no, like, I don't, I don't even think, really about transfer that there's to sport or whatever like there's no end to what to how high we can elevate the level of that human being if we just continually take and level up that lowest functioning system 
So if I have an athlete that is maybe only ready to handle 50 depth drops to start or handle 25 depth drops to start, that's absolutely fine. That's where we're going to start. It's just now we take and we say, okay, what is the limiter for your performance? Let's take that. Let's level it up. Then we do that process over and over and over again. Um, and I think the, the end product of that is, are those like very high level performances, um, which again, you know, some are probably very few are probably actually trained to get there. Some, some are just born to be able to do that. But it's, it's that process of understanding your own system, knowing what your body is saying and being able to navigate that like real time. Hmm. Yeah, I have like these two con- kind of conflicting <laughs> like paths in my head. Like, yeah. uh, like on one end you have, um, as per what you're saying, uh, I think about, I know Jake Tura like interviews these types of folks and like Jordan Kilgannon wrote, uh, I did a, a very well-known dunker. Most people probably know who he is who are listening to this, but um, like eight years ago, I did just a written Q and A with him. I think this was before he was tremendously popular, but you know, a guy you can get his chin like over the rim at six one, six two, and he back in the, his training was just dunking for hours and hours and hours on like low rim hoops and stuff like that, and just and every single day, just just this that with that same. I think that would be the epitome of that like childlike obsessiveness. There's yeah. no regards for volumes or anything like that. And I think then later, to my understanding, later on, he actually maybe got a little bit more tight with some of the volumes, started lifting weights, things like that. But I almost look at that on some level, it's like you have the the base of just body weight, like the base of ISOs, the base of just doing something obsessively and 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 with purpose. Because this is the, and I've heard other dunkers who have come up like that as well. And then you wonder, well, why is it dunking like it's not like sprint i don't think i don't hear those stories about sprinting and then i think well team sport actually if you play football how many times are you sprinting really fast every single game you know a lot um or soccer or a lot of sports that you play tons of short bursts of accelerations that would go beyond what we would consider a normal volume for like a track workout or a speed workout um but so but i also think about um like burnout like in especially in the individual sports but also i mean you work in baseball like how many you know, young kids are having Tommy John surgery by over-specializing, throwing too hard too early. Or you get like, if you're a high school cross-country runner and you run 100-mile weeks in high school, maybe you get really good early, but you're not going to be great later. Or the same thing would go in swimming. Um, if you swim a ton early on, tons of yardage, uh, you might burn it up a little bit and not have as much left for later on. And I think and college coach, coaches recruit with that in mind. So I guess my thought is like, what's the like, what's the difference and what does it mean for training? I'll, I'll say the last thing I'll say is I I know that, I mean, just like all the Karsten, the people in Karsten and the Warholms training group that didn't make it, right? <laughs> like, the people that, like, like what's the line or how do you leverage this? I've, I'm always a little bit more of a careful type personality with how I go about programming my stuff. I, I tend to, I, I probably live a little bit more of minimal effective dose than I would say, you know, a, a few hours of depth drops. I think that's awesome, by the way. I should do that at some yeah. point. <laughs> well, and I know, but I want to make sure, like, so I, so it doesn't just come across wrong. Like, like I said, I would never do that for an athlete. That was that was a personal experiment experiment for myself. Um, but then also that, like, when I'm training athletes, high volume isn't. It's not necessarily the goal the goal is, is meeting that athlete where they're at. So 
if like my system, I, I don't, I don't have a system. If I were to have a system, it would be that my system wouldn't be a high volume system. The system would be being able to understand where the athlete system is at and then meeting it there to then level it up from wherever it's at. So like, if we look at, if we look at systems that like even the Bulgarian system, I've heard a lot about that, where the athletes that made it in that system were extremely high level, but there was also a bunch that just completely fell apart. So that's where I'm not trying to train athletes in a system like that, where it's like, okay, if you can't handle the volume, like you're just gone. That's not, that's not how we improve every single human being that we, that we interact with. My goal is to take wherever they're at and then work to improve them from that point. So it's not, again, it's not, the goal isn't high volume. The goal is, is understanding the human where they're at and then taking them from that point. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I, one thing that's kind of coming up in my head and, and um, like, I, I just, I think that was really cool too, by the way, the, the idea of, um, you, you mentioned it with the, the experiment with the rats, but like how you always have more than you think you do in the tank. Like you always have, and the, the central governor theory and how really fatigue starts in the brain before it manifests itself in the muscles. But it makes me think of like the gap, you know, like what, like if we can define the gaps between like the Bulgarians who made it and the Bulgarians who didn't, or, you know, the, the Karsten Warholms and the ones who that volume was too much for. And you know, I'm always, I mean, I'm, I'm always one for a smart, good training system first. I would much rather do a feed the cats type system and track with a minimal dose than you know, blow people up with a temp, more of a Clyde Hart tempo system. I would definitely pick, I would definitely pick the one that's more efficient and just, and focus on that as the, the base layer of things. But I'm always, I do know that, you know, elite performers, they do need to have like, in my opinion, some good volume and repetition of the thing they're doing. And they, I do believe the best performers can just manage that volume better. They're just better at managing it. So it's like all those little things the beliefs, the intentions, how they process fatigue or discomfort, or even what you said before about the child who's trying to learn to walk and falls. Like I think about that for me, I needed basketball a lot because basketball, you, you're playing the game and you don't have a choice to say, ah, I'm going to stop playing now because you know, I'm getting kind of tired and the quality of these ground contacts is just going to shit. And I think I'm just going to stop. No, you, like, you keep playing the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that was some of the best things for me to be completely honest. Anyways, I hope you know um, where I'm going with that question. I'm curious, or that idea. I'm curious on your thoughts. So just, uh, you mean, you mean defining the the difference between those who are able to stand, like stand that volume or something a little bit different. If you just, yeah. 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 Sorry. The, yeah. The gaps, like what you maybe see yeah. on that human level, like, you know, you're yeah. working skill with players and you see players who are just absorbing it better They're They have maybe that obsessiveness to them and they're, 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 um, they're, they're working with it. Like they're working with the volume they do and they're adapting to it versus the people who just aren't adapting. And like, can you see that as the gap on the, just on that human level of work? I know it's so encompassing and so complex with psychology and belief and, and everything, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are when you go just down to like the isometric, the human level, like just drops or something that's very basic and yeah. things that you might be able to pick out. So, um, like you said, it's super complex. So if we just make it super simple, if we, if we can make a process super simple to be able to figure that out in each individual case, the way that I try to go about things or way that I would 
whatever suggest it, I guess would be take the athlete that is having trouble with it and ask them, what are you experiencing? What are you, what are you feeling? What is your body telling you? If they, we kind of talked about this a little bit before, but if they can't give you anything, then that right there is the very thing that's getting in the way. In in my opinion, Mm -hmm. that's the very thing that's getting in the way of them being able to do more is that they can't experience their own, like their own feeling. They don't, they're not able to, they're just, they're not able to get into an experience as much as someone else that might be a little bit more obsessive is. Mm. So you ask the question of, of that, like, what are you feeling? What are you experiencing right now? That might be one answer. If their answer is this body part hurts or I'm fatigued, then you ask them, okay, let's say that they're fatigued. You ask them, why are you feeling fatigued? And they might say like, I don't want to do this anymore. Or they might say like my, my muscles physically hurt, or they might say, um, like, I know that I have homework to do after this, <laughs> like whatever their answer is that you, you just, you keep going down that hole and you keep going down that hole until you get to the base of what it is. When you get to the base of what that is, that's, that's the limiter, like for that athlete, like for I, if we go back to that death drop example, just like to bring it back to where those limits are. So like the part that I didn't put up was the next day I went on like a three or four mile hike. Okay. And so I was wearing zero shoes. I, I don't know if you're familiar with those. Oh, yeah. yeah. I have a okay. few pairs. Yeah. So I was wearing zero shoes and I had a new pair, but I was wearing this old pair that had, they had like literal <laughs> physical holes in the, in the forefoot. And I was walking on like little pebbles and stones the whole time. So about two thirds of the way through, like I could not walk on my right foot because there's this massive amount of pain. So, so, and that obviously took me a little bit of time to rehab. So there is this level of, for every single athlete, like every athlete, there's going to be a level of this is too much. And it's just, we have to, when we find that spot, we have to go in right there at that moment, dig down as far as we can to figure out what's causing that. And then we go through that, we train that aspect right there, then bring that up. And what happens is next time, if we actually do it right, and we bring that level up, next time they're able to, like, whatever the performance is, go longer, run faster, throw harder, whatever it is, that is also going to be brought up a little bit because that inhibitor isn't in the way. I think where we get lost a little bit in, in strength and conditioning is we think we, we only have this small box that we look through of, of exercise, of weight room, of barbell, of, of ISO, mm-hmm. of whatever. If we take all of that away, we look at what is training. Training is taking the human, making them better. And to do that, we need to input a stimulus that challenges whatever is, is inhibiting them right now so that that inhibitor gets taken off and now they're at a high level. That might look like something in the weight room that might not. Like it might be a, it might be a conversation that shifts their perception. It might be understanding that you know, their home life has put them in this, in this mindset that they have. Like it's, it's so much more expansive, but that is how we, we make higher levels of, of progress in terms of athletics. Um, then, you know, then I think we're making right now. Yeah. I think I like the idea of think we're taking off the brakes more than we are pushing the athlete forward. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a really powerful way to go about things. And I think so oftentimes in coaching, it's like, all right, here's my set battery of yeah, commonly accepted exercises. And I'm going to push the athlete forward through these <laughs> versus yeah. taking off the brakes and letting the athlete navigate that is, I think, a powerful way of thinking. I, I think I'd like to wrap this all up or bring this together by just, I was like, you know, getting into nuts and bolts as much as possible. We've talked about some basic practical training ideas, but what does an average session look like for you then? Or what might an average session look like for you with some of these things in mind with uh, the individuals that you work with? Yeah. So there's, we talked about kind of like a training menu earlier. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily use a menu for for like the athletes don't really see a menu, but I kind of have these things and I might move toward more towards that. Like, obviously we're all, we're all kind of progressing as we go, but I have this menu of things that, that I'm going to choose from that might look like, I mean, everything, every way that you could challenge a human being is going to be on that menu. So it's going to be lifting heavy full range, you know, limited range or partials, whatever you might want to call them. It's going to be like moving fast bands, chains, ISOs, uh, like max contract, long duration ISOs, ISOs with breath, ISOs with specific um, like contraction, kind of like we talked about earlier. It could be high rep single joint moves. It could be uh, impulses, depth drops, et cetera. Like there's all these things that we can input into a session. So generally um, how I'm going to organize those is we're, we're going to have this base of, of stressors that we're going to input. So that might look like, okay, we're going to do something that's, he- we're going to do something heavy. We're going to do some type of exploration. Um, and I define exploration as like, you kind of, you set these parameters almost like a game and you're like, okay, you have like, let's say we do 10 minutes, 20 minutes for you to just go explore within these parameters. Um, we might have something like that in there. We would have ISOs high reps, again, all those things that I mentioned, we would work those in over the course of, let's say, a a three or four week schedule. Um, In some some facet, we'd work all those in. That's kind of like the the base of it. Like 80, 75 or or 80% of what I recommend for every athlete that I work with will be the same. And and it's, it's those things right there where we're taking, where we're taking each of those elements and we're putting them in to make sure that or to make sure that we're not falling off in any one area. Um, and then the last 15 to 20% is taking what the athlete, what their weakest quote unquote link is and, and, and providing input or providing a stimulus to break, to bring that up. So if we're talking nuts and bolts, it'd be like everyone just for this training day, everyone is going to something that I recently did is like a floor is lava. So I mean, it's, you basically like you set something up on whatever your setup is because I work mostly remote. You set up a bunch of these things on the floor and you're trying to jump and, and not land on the floor. So like I had one athlete that came back as and said like we I played pig I played pig with this with the buddy. So I was like okay that's a cool spin to put on it. But it's just you're exploring within this during for this specific amount of time. So everyone's doing that. Then everyone's hitting a uh, let's say that we were to do like a squat from pins. Everyone's going to work up to three sets heavy, whatever heavy means for you on that day, um, one set or three reps heavy, one set. And then everyone's going to be doing, let's say glute ham holds. Um, we're going to accumulate three minutes with a four inch box below your chest, et cetera. So I don't know if that, if that is nuts and bolts enough, I can 
kind of uh, tone that down or a little bit more if, if you want it. But it's all of those things that we can input into a program and we're going to hit all of those in some fashion over the course of like three or four weeks. Sure. I guess for nuts and bolts too, like where to like the mainframe stuff, uh, how do you utilize like sets and reps versus time? Yeah. Do you kind of move between those two constructs or is that part of the choice or how does that fall for you? Yeah. So I mean, sets and reps, time, even all of those are ways for an exercise to have meaning. We need to have some type of obviously like a, a way to direct intention. So sets and reps, time, exploration, like all those are ways to direct intention. So I'll, I'll use all of those where, you know, sometimes it'll be, okay, we're doing these two or three exercises. You have specific sets and reps within those exercises, but you're, you're going as many, as many like cycles through that as you want in 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And sometimes I'll say, we're going to do like four sets of, you know, of these. So I just, I utilize all of those and like, honestly, there's, there's no, there's no specific, like, I don't have like a template where I'm like, okay, we're going to use this once every week. We're going to use this twice every week. The way that I actually set it up, if we want to get real nuts and bolts is like, I base it off of what I'm feeling that I need. So I'll I'll do the training that I'll do the base level of training that my athletes are going to do usually two or three weeks in advance because I understand I've been training for a while. So I can kind of feel like what, maybe what we need to hit. So based off of that, like what I'm feeling two or three weeks out, then I'll like following that week, I'll write the athletes programs and I'll make changes where where needed. But that's how I stay on top of making sure that we're hitting all those aspects um, throughout a training program. Because I, I think a lot of coaches organize it in kind of like a, a fashion where like, okay, let's say that you've read something out of a book and you're like, okay, we need to hit squats. We need to hit deadlifts. We need to hit this. We need to hit that. And they'll organize it in that way. For me, it's more like I'm going to go off of, you know, what my body feels like it needs, but also the feedback that I'm getting from athletes um, and then organize it in that way. And, and I found that that works much better than having like a, you know, having like a kind of a laid out template, I guess, because I have done that as well. Yeah. Last thing just quickly is you mentioned like the single joint stuff, high rep, single joint movements. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you give a few examples of like, it's like I'm assuming like wrists, ankles, shoulders, like what are some, some of those uh, modalities that you find really helpful for bringing up some of the weak points towards the end of the session? Yeah. So there's really two different ways that will hit this. One of them, I just, it's just simple joint moves. So you take every single joint that you have and you move it in, in every direction that it can move in as deep of range of motion as you can in all those different directions. So I'll use those a lot of times as quote unquote recovery type work, because if we can take, if we take a joint to each of its end ranges, that means that the muscle is working to take the joint to each of the end ranges. So if we can go to both end end ranges, that generally means that the muscle is going to be recovered. Um, So I'll take every single joint that we have and take those through full range of motion. And we'll do that for anywhere from 25 reps each to, you know, 500 reps on specific joints that might be affected that have pain or that have injured or that have injuries. So that's one way that I'll use those. And the second way is through what I call, I guess, impulses. Um, and I think there's an impulse trainer out there. I don't use that. All I use is a simple rope or a ratchet strap with an ankle strap that goes around it. So you can put your hand or foot in it. And then we're going to attack. I mean, there's really endless ways that you can do this, but 
just for a few practical examples, if we want to hit the elbow, that elbow joint, we can do a bicep impulse. So if you picture you have a rope attached to a squat rack, you have your hand through an ankle strap that's on that ratchet strap. And then you're doing like a bicep curl against the squat rack and you're catching that with your elbow at 90 degrees. So you think you're going from arm straight to elbow at 90 degrees. When you get to 90 degrees, you're impulsing against that squat rack. So we would do high reps like that. And if we wanted to switch around and do tricep, then we would just do the opposite where we're going the opposite direction and we impulse at 90 degrees, but now we're pressing away from the squat rack so that the tricep kind of gets that impulse. Um, so those are two practical examples, but I also will use those for hips um, and shoulders and wrists as well uh, in some cases. But yeah, we'll go high reps with those anywhere from one to 300 reps. If we're going high reps for like every single move and there's, I think there's 14 moves. Um, so yeah, we can get up to some pretty high volumes with that as well. Cool. Yeah. So that's interesting with the, the interesting setup of the impulse trainer. Cause I've, I've used that impulse impulse a couple of times, but um, it's kind of a bigger machine. And so it'd be uh, yeah, it's I've, not huge. I've but. never actually, I've never actually used the trainer. So I'd be interested in just if there's different feel between that and kind of the setup that I've used or not, but yeah, I've never had the chance to use it. Yeah. I'll have to t- check out some of your videos and I'll, I'll see what that, see what it feels like. It seems like, I mean, I just think that sometimes the simplest things, sometimes almost if it's not quite as nice that, that itself has, or, you know, it's not the official thing. It's like a version that you kind of had to put together. Um, just like kind of training in a training dungeon. There's definitely an interesting value of that, but I'm, I'll have yeah. to check out those videos of yours and, and see what it feels like compared to the real thing. I, I'm looking forward to it. For sure. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, thanks for uh, your time today, Brady. It was great going through these questions and these training ideas. I, I know that your work and just thinking about this stuff, it really impacts uh, my day-to-day when I go through my training sessions. It definitely enhances them. And it really, uh, I just love the tra- the track that this puts my mind on. And it was great talking to you with all- about all this stuff. So I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having you on. Obviously, I like I said, I greatly respect what you're doing. You've been doing it for a long time. So I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you all next week with another great guest.